Uh, please join me. Let's go to our God in prayer. Oh, Father, we, we just thank You. We, we praise You for just being the, the good, amazing, delightful, wonderful God that You are. Thank You for life. We thank You that You gave us Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the new life that we have in Him. The eternal life that we experience now. As we rejoice in His first coming, and as we look forward to His return as He comes again, uh, Father, I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit. Help us to walk in obedience to Your Word. Uh, I pray that You would transform us even today as we encounter You in our Word and as we discover who Jesus is. Discover the image that He has of You and how we are to be like Him. And so, please guide us in our time in First John. Teach us. And might we delight in who you are and who you're making us to be. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. You know, when I, when I used to work in the restaurant business, I, I used to train employees when I was there. And uh, there were, um, when I came to these new employees, there were a couple fundamental principles that, that I had to ingrain into their mind very early on. One of the principles that we really reviewed and went over all the time and, and, and focused on so much was that, that our restaurant didn't have any customers. A lot of them would look at me really strange when I said that, even when we don't have any customers. So we don't have customers at our restaurant. We have guests. And, and when they come to our restaurant, they, they are to be treated as if, as if they were in your home. And so when someone is walking in the way and you're carrying food and, and, and they walk in front of you, rather than cut them off, you step to the side and you let them by as if they were your guest. And the second principle was that our servers were not glorified intercoms at a drive through and, and they were not there to merely, to merely present, um, to merely convey a food order to the kitchen. Instead, it was their job to guide our guests through an entire experience of dining in our house. And, and so that was the fundamental philosophy of how we waited tables. However, there was one occasion, I remember one particular experience where I was entertaining our guests, and when I came to this table to greet them, I, uh, I very quickly realized that this particular set of guests had a completely different expectation for what kind of experience they were going, going to have in our restaurant or why I had even come to their table. And on this particular occasion, I asked this couple if they were celebrating. And, and that, that evening, the reply was very tort. And, and the man looked up at me and he says, would we be eating at a restaurant if we weren't celebrating? I said, okay. I said, so uh, I wanted to give them time to look at the menu. And so I offered to get him a beverage and I started to step away. And he very quickly, after ordering tea, uh, very quickly rebuked me. He says, we're ready to order. I said, great, what would you like? And so I put the order in. I commenced after that. Uh, what I commenced after that was me putting a food order into the kitchen. And it came out in about 10 minutes and they devoured the entire meal, a very large meal and a very expensive meal at that in less time than 10 minutes. And when I asked if they'd like some dessert, they informed me that they were ready for the bill, and like that, their experience was over in just over 20 minutes. They had come to celebrate, and they got it done with, and they went home. They didn't spare any time talking while they were there. It was celebrating time, and so they ate, they came, and they got their bill, and they got out. You see, my purpose for coming to their table was to guide them through a wonderful dining experience 
so that they could enjoy one of the best meals that they had ever had and receive some of the best service that they had ever had in their life. But they saw my purpose very differently. It was just a means of getting some very quick and very expensive food, and that's what they did. This month, we've been examining several statements throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, in which the Bible tells us specifically, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came for this reason. And unfortunately, there are very many religious people that live in this country and in this world who attend churches and attend Christian gatherings, and they see Jesus very differently than he describes himself. And they understand Jesus' purpose for coming very differently than the purpose that Jesus gave them for coming. And they see Jesus in a similar way as my customers saw me coming to that table that day. Many religious people view Jesus as a quick means to an end. They come to church for a quick pick-me-up or an opportunity to feel better about themselves. They see Jesus as if He was a good luck charm or a divine Santa Claus. He'll make things better. He'll give me what I want. And then I can go back to my life just like I've always experienced it before. Now in a restaurant... Life is not going to be altered if you have a different understanding for why your servers come to the table. In fact, they might not even understand why they're there. But our God has laid it out with abundant clarity the reasons for which the Son of Man came and He appeared among us. Today, we are going to examine one last passage, one last Christmas passage, one more statement of His purpose for appearing on earth. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 where the Apostle John shows us two more reasons for Christ's coming. But understand that that he is not only going to declare these reasons to us, he is also going to make it it abundantly clear that Jesus expects his followers to live in a manner that is consistent with his coming. Let Let me be clear. Jesus is not interested in showing up in your life to guide you through a quick religious experience. He's not interested in coming in just making you comfortable with the way that you're living your life or the way that you've lived your life up until now without Him. He's not the one. He's not one who comes into your life to take an order and then send you off on your way. Jesus intends to change your life. He intends to alter it and for things to never be the same. Look at verses 4 through 7. 1 John chapter 3, let's start with verses 4 through 7, where we see that he appeared to take away sins. John writes to us and he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is, as he is righteous. And so, uh, let's, let's jump right to the purpose statement. Look at verse 5. There's two purpose statements, two reasons that were given for Christ appearing. The first one comes in verse 5 where he says He came to take away sins. He came to take away the penalty, the power, and one day the presence of sin itself. And so we ask ourselves, how was He able to do this? Because in Him, there there is and there was no sin none whatsoever nada the sin is completely 
absent from Jesus' character. It's completely absent from His behavior. And He was born on earth. He lived a life of, of perfection. He completely fulfilled the law. He completely walked in a manner in which He exhibited what righteousness looks like. Righteousness defines Jesus' life. And this is why He was able to bear the penalty for our sin. And this is why the cross was such a burden that He bore. You see, the perfect Son of God who never sinned, who bore the, He bore the full weight of God's wrath on the cross in order to take away our sins. And while on the cross, the unthinkable happened. The perfect Son of God who, who never sinned, who had never been out of fellowship with God the Father, who had always been in perfect relationship with God the Father for all of eternity, the perfect Son of God who never sinned became our sin. And in those moments... The Father looked down on the Son and He poured out His wrath on that sin, on His Son, and He turned His back on Jesus. The One who had no sin in Him became identified as sin. The full wrath of the Father was then poured out on the One who became our burden. And thus He took sins away. But what is sin? What is sin itself? John describes it very clearly. He defines it very simply for us. He says sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is a, it's a defiant violation of God's holiness. It's something that radically opposes His nature. You can switch the terms around. Lawlessness is sin. You see, too often we mis we've misunderstood Jesus' reason for coming. Too, too often, people approach Jesus as if He's come to the table to offer us a little bit of forgiveness, a little bit of religious experience. And then we can take the bill and then we can get back to our life of just living life as we wanted to and going back to our sin. But that's not how Jesus sees His purpose. It's not how He's defined it. He says your sin is a defiant violation of God's holiness. Your sin is an affront to the very character and the very nature of the One who created you. The One who sustains every single beat of your heart. Your sin is lawlessness. Now we hear those terms and we think in, you know, we've heard those all of our lives, right? And, and, and so we kind of we, we go past it. Like, yeah, I've read that before. But, but what, is, what does that really mean? Uh, picture it this way. I mean, I think most of us are pretty sick of the lawless nature of a lot of the riots that are happening around the world. Not just in our country, but all over the world. It was happening when we were in Italy uh, and, and France. We saw it going on there too. There's this senseless destruction of, of our cities. Senseless destruction of people's livelihoods. Their own businesses, their own homes being burnt down. And it's, it's this absurd tragedy. There's this unrestrained violence that's perpetuated against other people. Against our fellow man. It's unruly. It's tragic. It's a vivid display of what we call lawlessness. When people break the law and, and they go about doing their business in a manner that is inconsistent with anything that's right. And, and this is the nature of, of sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's an absurd display. Your sin and my sin is an absurd display of violence perpetuated against a holy God. The very One who's given you life. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, John says. And so understand that Jesus appeared for the purpose of taking away sin. Now, 
as we go through this passage, it's really important that we understand something that John does with the language. Okay? And there's something he does with the, the Greek tenses. Now, I know you're thinking, Jeff, Christmas was yesterday. Are we really going to go into a lesson of grammar? And the answer to that is yes, we are. Stick with me on this, though, okay? Because this is really important because this is very pivotal to understanding what John does throughout this entire passage and really throughout his entire epistle uh, in 1 John. In, in English, we, we keep things pretty simple. We have past, present, future tense. And I know those grammarians out there know that it's a little bit more complicated than that. But in essence, in English, tense, verb tense, tells you when something happened. And so if it's in the past tense, when did it happen? Before now. If it's in the present tense... It's going on, and it's in the future tense. It hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's going to, or I plan for it to. And so we have these basic tenses, but in Greek, not only do you, are you able to show the time something happens, but the Greek verb tense also shows the aspect in which it happens. Now, what do I mean by that? So in, in English, if I said, um, I ran, past tense, means it's already happened. If I say I am running, you know that it's in the present tense. And if I say I will run, Future tense. In the Greek, however, I can do some things that are a little bit different with that. I can not only show when something happens, but I can show what kind of running takes place. I was hoping Eli was going to be here today. Is Eli? They're they're with baby, aren't they? And so um, let's use Eli Kaczynski as an example since he's not here and we're going to talk behind his back. Eli Kaczynski runs, right? Everybody knows Eli Kaczynski likes to run. I don't know why. I think it's pretty sick, but, but he likes to run. And when I, when I say that Eli Kaczynski runs, I mean he really runs. He runs marathons and he runs fast. He runs in the past tense. He's probably running right now with a kid in tow and he, he's planning on running in the future. I, I don't run. I, I ran in the past because my PE teacher told me I had to and, and he scared me. I run in the present when somebody chases me with a knife but that's it. I'm done. I don't, I don't have any desire to do more than that. And so there is this aspect of when something happens, but in the Greek tense, in the Greek tense, I can show you how something happens. So let me, let me illustrate that. There's two, let me just use two major tenses that John's going to use here in 1 John. He's going to use what we call the Greek present tense. Now understand when I say the Greek present tense, that doesn't just mean the now. I can use present tense for the future. I can use present tense for the past. And that gets really confusing for us English people because what do you mean? It's the present tense and it's not happening right now. Uh, so I can show time, and sometimes it does refer to the right now, but, but present tense, more than that, it shows something that's an ongoing action. It continues on. Versus on the other side of things, I can use what's called, we call it the aorist tense. A-O-R-I-S-T, for those of you who are taking notes. Aorist. The aorist tense shows something that, that happens in, in a point in time. And so when Eli Kaczynski runs, is it in the present tense or the aorist tense? It's a marathon. He's running. It's continuing on and on and on. He runs to continue to run. And, and so it's, it's present ongoing action that's perpetual. Now, there may be breaks in what he does, right? He, he's not always running a marathon. He has to eventually take a breath and, and eat something. But, but that action continues on for lengths of time. When I run, it's, I, I ran across the street because somebody was chasing me with a knife. It, it, was, it was a point in time. And so if I'm going to use this verb, I'm sorry for those of you who are online, I'm all over the place and I see Gabe back there trying to catch up with the camera, but uh, glad you guys are here too. And so if I'm using this aorist tense, what's happening is it's happening at this point in time and I ran across the street, but, 
but the present tense says, I, I am running and it's continuing on. Now, John is going to use those tenses in, in 1 John, and, and the difference is this. Back in 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2, he used the aorist tense a lot. I sinned. When you sin, uh, and, and it's this point in time. If you sin, if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so, the sinning happened how? It's not just a matter of when it takes place, but the kind of action. When you sinned, when you disobeyed God, you confess that sin and you make that relationship right because He's your father and you're His son or His daughter and you want to make sure that relationship is right and, and continue in that fellowship with Him that normal family members like to enjoy. And that sin that happens every once in a while gets in the way of that. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, if anyone says they do not sin, and he uses the aorist tense again, what does he call him? He's a liar. The truth's not in him. If you come to me and say, I don't sin anymore. I never sin. I don't sin. Aorist tense. John says, you're a liar. The truth's not in you because, yeah, you do. I sin, you sin. We all struggle with it still. We haven't been freed completely from the presence of sin like we will be on the other side of eternity. Sin still happens occasionally. And God's given us a remedy for that so that we continue that fellowship with Him as we confess our sin. But, now we're going to jump to 1 John chapter 3, and guess what John's going to do? He's going to change from that aorist tense of every once in a while to ongoing, continuing marathons of sin, basically. And let's reread verses 4 and 6 with this in mind. And I love how the ESV translates this. I think they do a really good job. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, there's which tense? Present, ongoing action, right? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Again, present tense. Sin is lawlessness. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Is, is that the one time running across the street? Or is that the marathon? It, it's the ongoing perpetual action. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So, Understand that everyone who practices a life of continual sin is defiantly living in violation not only of God's holiness, but they are living in defiance of the very reason that Jesus came and appeared among us. They are living in defiance of His life, in defiance of His death on the cross. Jesus appeared not to make you feel better about your sin, not to, to put a band-aid on the problem, but He appeared to take away sins. He came to take sins away. And this means that He has appeared to take away the penalty of your sin. By God's grace, through faith in Christ alone, He, does, he, he gave you eternal life. And forgiveness and redemption are yours in Christ, but it also means that He appeared to take away the power of sin in your life. You see, before your, your entire life, it operated within the realm of sin. You, you may have done some good deeds every once in a while. There may be some random acts of kindness that you committed in that realm, but you always continued to operate within this realm of continual defiance against God's holiness. Even when you were doing good things and committing good acts every once in a while, your life was still in this realm of sin. 
until by grace you were given life and you came into this realm of a new king. And in this, in this king, there is no sin. He has no sin. He is holy. And so understand, if you continue in the practice of sin, our present tense progression, you are living in defiance of the One whom you claim saved you from your sin. You are living in defiance of the One whom you claim reigns in you. But, but your life shows you that He's not. It, your life it, it, in continual sin, as it continues to progress and continues to perpetuate, your life in defiance of the One who is absent from sin in, in every way so, whatsoever, it shows that you're not in Him and you don't have a relationship with Him. Again, verse 6, he takes this bold step beyond with, with two statements. He says, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. And so again, in John's vocabulary, one who abides in Jesus is one who has a relationship with Him. There's, if, if once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you abide in Him. It, it's part of the relationship. And so, uh, this isn't something that you have to hold on to somehow or you have to keep it going. You, you either abide in Him or you, or you don't. And if you have a relationship with Him, then you abide with Jesus. Therefore, if you've truly been saved, then you will no longer keep on sinning. Does that mean you won't ever sin, but you won't continue in this perpetual state of living in this sin relationship. Therefore, if you've truly been saved, you'll no longer continue living in sin. If you have a relationship with Jesus, then the perpetual life of sin is over. In the future, we'll also be set free from those, those little aorist sins that happen in our lives that frustrate us, that grieve us. We go, oh, did it again. I've been struggling with this and I hate this and, and, and there it is. And... But if you've been saved, then the continual presence of ongoing defiance in your life will no longer remain. It's like a child. Um, there's a difference between a child who, who disobeys their parent and, and then that relationship is eventually restored. Sometimes it's a rough battle, isn't it? Sometimes there's discipline involved. Sometimes there's grief involved. Sometimes there's a lot of pain involved in it. But there's this child that disobeys, but then finally there comes a restoration between the parent and the child. But on the other side, you have a different kind of child who, who has no regard for their parent and they continue in perpetual rebellion. Two different stories, two different families, two different, completely different sets of circumstances. Understand that if you've received God's gift of salvation, then you will not continue walking in a life of sin. You're going to be like that child that wants to have that relationship with restored. You, you know that something's wrong and you want to fix it. And your Father in Heaven may need to discipline you to get your attention sometimes. Some of us need a little bit more discipline than others. But, but the sin grieves us and, and it, it frustrates us. And there's this desire to walk with Him. A desire to do what's right. But then John takes a second, makes a second statement. He takes things even further. He says, no one who keeps on sinning, present tense, has either seen Him or known Him. And there's a great warning here. And this is why I believe that God encourages us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because I think Paul and, and John and these others who wrote these passages of Scripture, they understood that not everybody was reading these passages or, or in these churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. They understood that not everybody who was in these churches was, was truly saved. There were a lot of people that were imitating a form of godliness, but, but truly didn't know Jesus. 
There are millions of people who are just blasting through this life. And you need to pause and ask if you're one of them. There are many who are going through this life under the assumption that they have eternal life. In Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Really contemplate, have I truly trusted Christ? Or am I still living in sin? Does sin grieve me? Is there a change that's taken place? Maybe I feel bad about it, but has it truly grieved you? Do you truly have a relationship with Him? There are a lot of people who I think have repeated a prayer. So, oh, of course I'm saved. And I, and I hear different things. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American, right? No, that doesn't save you. Of course I'm saved. Uh, I said a prayer when I was five years old. I repeated the pastor's words. I don't remember what they were or what it was all about, but I repeated a prayer. The prayer got me in. I walked down the aisle. I came to an altar. I raised my hand. I, I did this. I did that. There are many who have been going to church their whole life and comparatively they've done a lot of good things in this life. But there are many who have never actually come into a relationship with the Savior who shed His blood for them and rose from the dead. In fact, I would go so far as to say I think there are millions who would be able to tell you Jesus died on the cross for sins. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. I believe that. I come to Easter. Yeah, I think He raised from the dead. Yeah, amen, brother. Oh wait, you mean my sin? Personally, I have a sin problem. I think he died for sinners. And sure, I'm a sinner, but, but there's never been repentance. There's never been a response to, I, I have a sin problem and I need a Savior. I think there are millions who, who are counting on their works so that they believe the right facts. But it's never been about their own sin and repentance and believing on the One who died for them. Putting all of their trust in Him and Him alone. If you doubt this, just open the newspaper. Read some obituaries. You'll witness countless thousands of people who are expecting to fly away with the angels because heaven just needs their good works now. After all, they were a member of such and such a church. They participated in so many clubs. They fed the poor. They worked with children. How could they not be in? And you see, the problem is that these countless millions never had a true relationship with Jesus. A lot of them do. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people that, that are going to, doing some great things out there that really truly have a relationship with Jesus. But there are many who are deceived into thinking that somehow all these good things that they've done or, or the right actions or the right prayer or the right raising of the hand, that somehow their works have saved them. And countless millions have never had a true relationship with Jesus that was established through their faith in God's grace. You see, a Gospel that teaches us that I can somehow make it to heaven by something that I did, that's no good news at all. And John offers you a test. He says, look at your life. Just, just look at your life. And if your sin doesn't bother you, and you can continually keep on sinning, then, then you need to take some serious, do some serious soul-searching about what you believe and about what you think has got you into the kingdom. And understand that if you keep on sinning, Greek present tense, then you've never been in a relationship with Him. You don't know Him. 
And His purpose for appearing was to take away sins. It doesn't mean that we will live perfectly on this side of heaven. But, but this life of perpetual sin, living in this realm of sin, Jesus has come to give us power. Uh, to, uh, to deliver us from the power of sin. Jesus told His disciples in Matthew that when He returns, there are going to be countless numbers of individuals who will be turned away, convinced that they, they had done enough to get in. Many will say, Lord, Lord! And He will declare to them, I never knew You. John tells us in chapter 3, here in our epistle, he says that no one keeps, who keeps on sinning a life of ongoing sin, that one does not know Him. And the converse is true. If you do not know Christ, who is righteous and holy, then your life will reflect, um, it won't reflect any change. But if you do know Jesus Christ and you do have a relationship with the one who is righteous and holy, then your life will change and it will reflect the change that he's brought about. Look at verse 7. He says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Again, Greek present tense. When a relationship with Jesus happens, then our lives are transformed by His grace. And I, I not only stop living in perpetual practice of sin, but now I become like Him. And I start living in this realm of righteousness. I'm no longer doing just random acts of kindness, but I'm living and practicing righteousness because Jesus is righteous. And again, if you think that Jesus appears like Santa Claus is supposed to, then you've misunderstood Him. Jesus doesn't just stay at the North Pole only to make occasional glorious appearances in your life. He's come to change your life. He's come to take sin away. And He expects that there should be a transformation. And if you are in Him, then you will see Him transform you. Let's look at verses 8-10 through 10 as we conclude. Because John continues on. And he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared, here's the second purpose statement, was to destroy the works of the devil. Do not be, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, a while back, I took a, a DNA test. Uh, you know, those things that you get for Christmas. And one of my sons bought me this uh, ancestry kit. Oh, this is kind of cool. And so we, I took this DNA kit. And then I started noticing some anomalies. Some things didn't quite match up with what I expected. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd known my family history for a long time and, and a lot of cool things about my family history. And I was looking at it, and I started, you know, there's some cousins here I don't recognize. I mean, there's thousands of them. I don't recognize a lot of them, but there's a few of them here. Uh, they're, they're not supposed to be here. And there's some cousins I expect to be here that aren't showing up in my DNA comparison. And so I was like, Som something's not right in what I thought was about my family that this is telling me my, my family is. And, and then I started noticing some cousins that I do have. It's like, okay, that's supposed to be a first cousin but it looks like they're a third. And so something's not matching up. And so then I took another DNA test later on to show a couple other things, and, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, that's what happened way back when. And there was some family event, and we won't get into all that today. But, and then I saw pictures. And, and I got a 
picture of a, a cousin of one of my family members, and I went, they're twins. Here's this person that I'm not supposed to be related to, but I am now, and always was, and they sure look like part of the family. And, and all, all this to say, when, when you're part of a family, you start noticing characteristics, don't you? If you're part of one family and, and you, you know, everybody has big noses and you have a it's just, you know, it's a characteristic that runs in this family. These people are tall, they're short, they do this. It's the same thing in God's family. And John says, look, there are two families here. One is of the devil and one is of God and his family. And if you're a part of this family, what is your behavior going to look like? What is your life going to look like? It's going to look like your father. There's going to be a resemblance because that's what happens in families. There's a resemblance within the family. And if you're in this family, what's going to happen? You're going to look like your father because there's a family resemblance. John continues using this Greek present tense here and he makes a statement of what family you're part of. In verses 4-7, through he showed us that ongoing sin in the life of a Christian is a contradiction because of the very nature of of sin. It flies in the face of the very nature of who Jesus is. It flies in the face of who He has made you to be. Sin is lawlessness and it is totally opposed to Christ who is righteous. Now John shows us that ongoing sin in the life of a Christian is a contradiction because the very nature of sin, it contradicts your origin. It contradicts the family that you're part of. Sin is lawlessness, but what is the original? What is the origin of sin? Where, where did sin begin? Did God create it? Did God throw things in and say, hey, let's make some things interesting here? No. no we, we, he makes it emphatically clear that that's not what happened. The originator of sin is the devil. He is the one who first rebelled against his Creator, and the devil is the one who has been scheming ever since. But Christ appeared. And again, Why? Verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. Not only to take away sin, but to destroy the very work that Satan has been accomplishing from the beginning. From that first moment that the devil said, ah, maybe I could be like God. And he fell, and he destroyed so much, and he has been leading others into the same rebellion ever since. And Jesus came to destroy that. Now here's the gist of everything. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, one is a part of the devil's, devil's family. And if one is a part of this family, then they will resemble the devil by practicing a life of sin. But if you are part of the family of God, then your life will change because you will resemble the one from whom you originate. Now again, John, John's not talking about individual acts. He's not talking about individual acts of sin. He's not talking about individual acts of good. He's not saying that those that are apart from Christ that don't abide in Him can never do anything good. Have you ever gone into the world and seen some people that hate Jesus that have done some really good things? They go out into their, 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 their neighborhoods and society and, and they, they do some really good things. There's some nice people out there that don't know Jesus. And he's, he's not saying that a person that's not saved can never do anything good in their life. And he's also not saying that those who abide in Christ will never sin. He's made that very clear in chapter 1, chapter 2. If you say that you never sin, then you're a liar and you don't know Him. 
But when a man or a woman comes to Christ, then the nature of their life will change and they will resemble the family that they belong to. And so again, if you look at your life and you know that there's never been change, then John's challenge for you is to contemplate which family do you resemble? As you look at your life, does your life look like your father the devil? Or are you a child of God? And if you resemble your father the devil, then take this warning and repent and turn in faith to the One who died in your place. Throw yourself before Him and recognize that you are are lost apart from Him. Receive adoption as sons and this miraculous transformation in which you receive new DNA. You become a part of a new family, a new father. Stop putting your trust in the random acts of kindness that you're attempting and let your faith be in Jesus who lived perfect righteousness because He was righteous and is righteous today. Through His death and resurrection from the dead that He will not only make you righteous, but through Him you will be born again. You you will be born into a new family and through Him you will no longer have to try to, to look like a member of His family. Instead, you will resemble Him because you are part of His family. You know, as we celebrate our Lord's Advent, a central necessity that must be a part of our worship is that we consider why He came. We've been doing that this month as we look at these different purpose statements throughout, throughout the New Testament. And John gives us this one. And he tells us that Jesus appeared to take away sins and to destroy the work of the devil. Je- Jesus didn't come to just give us a fun holiday to celebrate. I, I hope you had a fun holiday and I hope you celebrated and I hope it was wonderful yesterday. I hope you continue in that. But that's not the only reason He came. He didn't come to make us feel better about ourselves or to feel better about our efforts to redeem ourselves because you can't. No work that you ever do, no good deed that you ever commit can ever redeem you from your sin. Jesus came to transform your life. And, and we will stumble and we will sin occasionally, but we we do not have to sin. And we do not sin habitually. And when we do sin, it grieves us. And as sons and daughters who now resemble our Father in heaven, we're grieved by sin because we recognize that lawlessness, it stands in contradiction to the very nature of the One that we love. And as children of God, our sin grieves us because it stands in contradiction to the very family that we've been brought into. And so my prayer for you, you know, please, if, if you're here and you've contemplated these things in these moments and you, maybe you've just recognized, wow, I, I don't think I am saved. I've gone to church my whole life and I've been a pretty good guy. But I'm still living in this realm of the Greek present tense. Sin defines me. I'm not really that bothered by sin. If, if you're there and you recognize that, that sin doesn't grieve you and that you do make a practice of sinning because you don't have a relationship with Him, my prayer for you is that you would receive the gift that He offers to you in 2021 with eternal life. With the greatest gift that God has ever given to us, His Son, Jesus Christ. Reject your sin. And choose Christ. Receive the eternal life that comes through Him who died for your sins and He rose from the dead. And when you put your trust in Him rather than your own works, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you will not only receive forgiveness, but life. 
and His righteousness and adoption into His family. And if you've contemplated these things today and you do abide in Him, my prayer is that His righteousness and the righteousness that He's given to you, that it would cause you to rejoice. It would cause you to praise Him. And pray that your standing as a child as a child of God, that it would lead you to joy and, and, and it would lead you to proclaiming His work in your life and telling others of the great work that He accomplished on the cross and that He offers to them. May it exhibit itself in us as we love one another. First John goes on. We're not studying First John as the whole book, but, but the next thing he goes into, it goes right naturally into you look like the family and part of the other thing that happens when you're part of the family, when you have His righteousness, is you love others. You love your other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray that it would exhibit itself in your love for one another. And may the righteousness that belongs to us in Christ lead us to not only in demonstrating love in word and talk, but also in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Uh, Father in Heaven, we, we, again, we thank You. We thank You for what You've accomplished. For so long in this life, we've been trying to do things on our own. Before we met Christ, our attempts to find forgiveness were based on our own works, based on a few good things we've done in this life, based on a hope that maybe the good things would outweigh the bad things. And none of this can accomplish the righteousness that we need. The only way that we can stand before You and enter into eternal life is if we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. And so, Father, I just thank You that those who are here who are part of Your family, that they have received that righteousness that came because Jesus took the wrath for their sin. And Father, my prayer for those that are here that may not know You, that today, even in this moment, right now as they sit where they're at, that they would realize they don't have to walk an aisle, they don't have to come to an altar or raise their hand or do anything special. It's just what Jesus did. And I pray that they would receive that free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, Your Son. That they would put their faith in Him and the work that He finalized on the cross and the power of His resurrection. I pray that You would transform them by Your grace. Go out from here. Lord, help us to live this out. Might we live it out with joy? Might we live it out in a manner that it would, it would um, shine into other people's lives and they would, they would have a reason to ask us, what, why, why this change in you? Why, why are you so different? And I pray that we would be answer, ready. pray that we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Father, thank You for this Christmas season as we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Might this rest of this week be special for our families. And through trials, might we continue to look through to You for Your grace as we walk in obedience to You and are filled by Your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask this and pray. Amen.